Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. As Western leaders gathered in Munich this weekend for the Munich Security Conference, warnings about Russian President Vladimir Putin's possible next moves were mixed with Europe's growing concerns that it could soon be abandoned by the United States as aid to Ukraine is stalled in Congress and former President Trump casts doubts on America's commitment to NATO. Max Bergman, the director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Stort Center in Euro-Atlantic and Northern European Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joins me to look at these concerns and explore whether European defense has now become a necessity. Max, great to have you back on our show. Great to be with you. Max, with a resurgent Russia on one side and a U.S. that is sending mixed signals about its commitment to European defense, is Europe at its most dangerous juncture in decades? Unfortunately, I think so. And the problem is both with Europe and the decades of underinvestment in defense, but Really, for me, I think it's mostly with the United States. I mean, NATO is structured such that the United States is central to the running of NATO. We ask European countries to spend on national defense. Uh, we don't ask them to spend on European defense. It's the United States that provides European defense, and it's European countries that all go out and buy different equipment and build their own national militaries. And the idea is that all these national militaries then dock into the United States. It's to US-led military operations. It's an American Supreme Allied Commander. It's the US nuclear deterrent. All of these factors make it so that Europe is dependent on the United States. And that's how the United States has wanted it. And so for Donald Trump to come out and say that you know, he wouldn't defend Europe if Europeans don't pay up as if it's a protection racket, really, I think, misunderstand the bargain that has been struck with Europe that basically, you know, Europe is dependent on the U.S. And then what does the U.S. get from it? Well, it gets sort of a ready-made coalition of countries eager to support, oftentimes eager to support, U.S. foreign policy initiatives and in military efforts, whether in Afghanistan or even Iraq. So I think the United States has gotten a lot from it. NATO has been really important, but I think we're now at a point where the United States has drifted away from the alliance. And I think that's what Trump is sort of tapping into it's not really about wanting European countries to spend more. Yeah, that's, that's been the rhetoric. It's really about not wanting to micromanage European security and wanting Europe to, quote unquote, get its act together and for Europeans to take charge of European defense. And the irony is that, that actual administrations have opposed this, opposed Europe getting its act together on defense for many decades. And all of this comes with the backdrop of Ukraine being on the back foot in the war, Russia having remobilized its defense and industry, and Europe facing a tremendous threat to its own security, the greatest threat it's faced, I think, since, since the Cold War period, and the United States not being clear that it's going to be there. So I think this is a, a really precarious moment for European security. A key concern, Max, in Europe is the U.S. commitment to Ukraine as aid seems to be stalled in Congress. While some may talk about you know, Ukraine fatigue with the war, does this really reflect where the public is, both in the U.S. and in Europe? So what's interesting about this Ukraine fatigue is I don't actually buy it. I don't think there is sort of broader public fatigue about the war in Ukraine. When you, There's recent polling that's come out that shows that the American public overwhelmingly supports Ukraine aid. The issue is that Donald Trump, who commands the support of the Republican Party, who's likely going to be the Republican nominee, is against Ukraine aid and is, is not you know, supportive in many respects of NATO. 
And so what you have now are a portion of the Republican Party, particularly in the House, that is strongly against Ukraine aid, and, you, and some have described them as sort of pro-Russian in their, in their outlook. And what you have is a political dynamic in our House of Representatives, where the Speaker of the House, who has essentially total control over the body of the House of Representatives, only has a two-seat majority. It's one of the most slender majorities. And so you have political chaos, where the Speaker of the House can't get his party to agree on to do anything. And so the only way you would have Ukraine aid passing is basically with Democratic votes. And no speaker wants to bring to the floor something that will divide his party. And Ukraine aid will divide his party. Now, the irony is that there's probably, you know, two thirds of the House will support Ukraine aid. We just saw 70 senators supporting Ukraine aid. So that's that's a good amount of support for Ukraine assistance. I think, though, the broader problem is that the Republican Party, which has long been very hawkish and supportive of America having a very robust international role, as seen by the vote in the Senate, is now divided. And that is the major problem, is that we no longer have kind of clear bipartisan support for the U.S. playing an active role. But, you know, the amount of public support for foreign aid to Ukraine is incredibly high. It's probably higher than any other you know, aspect of U.S. assistance. It's just that it's become a political issue and Republicans, a major part of the Republican Party is against it. So that is creating a huge headache for the United States and has really big implications if the United States is suddenly not going to have a Congress in support of it playing a major role in the world. Because one of the things that we have seen over the last decades is, or, or since World War II is the major power of the United States is that we can act, but how can we act? Well, it's because Congress funds it or funds our efforts. And if Congress is divided on how we fund our international engagement, well, that's a big problem, not just for Ukraine, but for Europe and also for our Asian allies as well. Max, you brought up a resurgent Russia, which has made gains in Ukraine. And coupled with the recent statements on NATO that we've heard from former President Trump, is this creating a sense in Europe that perhaps we could begin to see Russia test the limits of America's commitment to defend its NATO allies in the near future? Yeah, I think that's a huge concern. I think it was a concern during the first Trump administration where it was also clear that the president himself did not have any clear attachment to NATO. We forget that the first NATO summit that he went to, which was in Brussels, I think in May of 2017, there was, you know, Trump up until that point had not committed to Article 5 to defend European allies if they were attacked. And then there was all this hype that he was going to do it at his speech at NATO, and he ended up not doing it, despite it being reported he was going to. And later he kind of, you know, he said it, but in kind of a, in a less high-profile manner. But I think there's a tremendous question about whether Donald Trump would come to Europe's aid, no matter what Europeans are spending. And I think that's something that Vladimir Putin would certainly certainly might test. I think the other broader dynamic here, which sort of goes beyond Trump, but I think is just as serious for European security, is that the burgeoning relationship between Moscow and Beijing is one that has to be concerning for, for Europe in the sense that, look, if there is a, a China-US conflict over Taiwan or some other cause in the Indo-Pacific, not something I hope happens and not something I think will happen. But if we're, you know, part of defense is kind of Investing in defense in some ways is life insurance. You, you know, hope that worse doesn't happen, but you need to be prepared for it. If 
an event like that were to happen, then the U.S. military is going to pull out a lot of equipment from Europe. Not only that, but the United States defense industry is going to be strapped. It's going to be providing, you know, have to ramp up production for its own forces. And, you know, Russia would probably want to take advantage of that. It would want to take advantage of a distracted United States, not just for its own benefit of trying to overturn European security, but it will also be seen as doing it in solidarity with Russia's partner in, in China because it would be another distraction. And that's, you know, when we think about Japan's actions in World War II, they weren't disconnected from what was happening in, in Europe. They were looking very closely at what was happening in Europe. And I think what you could see is something very similar. So I think this has to be of major concern to Europe that it is dependent on a United States that is increasingly distracted by China, absorbed by China, and then also has this potential anti-NATO faction within the Republican Party. And I think there's also just another broader point is that you have a president right now in Joe Biden that is probably our last Cold War era president, right? He grew up during the Cold War period. And now you have a new generation of American politicians, American policymakers that have spent their careers not thinking about Europe, focused on the Middle East, focused on counterterrorism, focused on China. And so European security is sort of this distant abstraction to them. And I think that that's a broader, a broader problem that things aren't going to get better, I think, with time here. And so they're really, we're at kind of a pivot point, I think, in how NATO and how Europeans approach security. Some European leaders, including Prime Minister Mitsotakis, raised this issue at the Munich Security Conference when discussing investments in European defense. Is European defense now becoming a necessity? I, I think it definitely is. And this is where, look, a tremendous amount has happened over the last generation in Europe. I think sometimes in Washington, we have the sense that Europe is sort of stuck in its ways and it's nothing has really happened and they don't invest in defense. And it's, but Europe has been transformed over the last generation. EU integration has happened in all these areas with the major exception of being defense. And I think oftentimes Europeans are very pessimistic about the prospect of integrating European defense efforts when I frankly don't understand why, when you look at the rest of Europe. And then when you look at public opinion inside of Europe, when it comes to European defense, what you see is like 80% of Europeans support strengthening EU defense efforts. And they know what that means. It means that, you know, they want their security taken care of and they recognize that the threat for most European countries is not a threat to the nation, but a threat to Europe itself. And so it makes sense that European forces could begin to work together and act together as one, not as sort of just disparate forces that require the United States to come in through NATO to coordinate. And that's just simply not, I think, a tolerable situation for Europe to be in. So we have to kind of now begin the hard slog of integrating, I think, European defense forces. And that doesn't mean let's start tomorrow to create a European army. That is oftentimes thrown out. But the way European integration works is by you identify a gap that exists, such as Europeans don't have enough air tankers. Well, guess what? The EU could conjure money, could borrow 100 billion euros tomorrow and buy those air tankers. Problem solved. But then how would they be operated? Well, this is then the process of European integration. Well, we'll figure out, maybe we'll bring a bunch of countries together to fly them. But you begin to problem solve, right? That's what European integration is about. It's about problem solving. So let's begin to work the problem in through doing that, I think what you would see is not necessarily a European army, but Europeanized armies that then maybe certain countries decide, well, they're not going to invest in building an army, but you know, Slovenia decides that's not going to be their priority. 
but they'll contribute more to an EU collective fund or something like that. And I think you begin to you know, put Europe on that path. The problem is that the United States has opposed this for the last 25 years. The United States has said, EU, don't do defense. We got this. We want everything to be through NATO and be through the United States. And so the problem is that if Donald Trump is elected president, how can Europe reverse this sort of overnight? And the answer is, I don't know if they can, but they need to start thinking about it and start acting fairly promptly because the threat to European security is very real. Max, thanks again for joining us. It's always great chatting with you. Thanks so much for having me back. In other news, in New Delhi on Wednesday, Prime Minister Mitsotakis described Greece as India's natural entry point into Europe, highlighting the long-standing partnership between Greece and India as the world's oldest democracy and the world's largest democracy. Mitsotakis emphasized Greece's potential as a mediator between India and Europe. In joint statements following discussions between the two countries' delegations, Mitsotakis noted progress in advancing strategic cooperation in a wide range of areas including defense, security, technology, investments, education, culture, tourism, and agriculture. Finally, Greek farmers honked their tractor horns in front of Parliament on Wednesday after spending the night in central Athens as their protest against rising fuel and production costs stretched into a second day. At least 8,000 farmers joined the protest in Sindagma Square on Tuesday. The government has so far offered farmers discounts on power bills and an extension of a tax rebate for agricultural diesel to the end of 2024. It has said it is willing to discuss a more permanent tax rebate scheme, but that there is no chance of further concessions this year. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.